You're listening to Herbalian Health Radio, episode number 10. She used to deliver babies, but now she delivers exceptional wellness for women. Welcome to Her Brilliant Health Radio, where holistic women's health expert and board-certified OBGYN Dr. Kieran Dunstan shares revolutionary insight from leading experts on what you need to know today to treat the root cause of disease, heal, and create the radiant health you've been searching for. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> October Breast Cancer Awareness Month. No, oh, no, we call it Breast Health Awareness Month. Yes. Yes, because we believe in our office that um, the majority of uh, breast cancer risk can be mitigated with a healthy lifestyle. And so if women are empowered with information uh, about diagnostic screening and tools to help reduce their risk, then they are empowered to be breast cancer prevention warriors. Yes, breast cancer or breast health month. Breast health awareness month. Yes, ma'am. It's October. There we go. So I made a little PowerPoint to share with your listeners about um, how, what the latest evidence tells us about um, breast cancer screening tool options, as well as a bunch of home remedies for breast health. You want to go through it? Yes, let's do it. Great. So in our office, we ask, how are your girls? And I used my um, computer to make that little icon. You like it? I, I invented that. So um, yeah, I do love I really do love it. And, and I do want to say that the reason why I wanted to have Dr. Campbell talk about breast health, breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, early detection this month is because there is so much fear around breast cancer. And I don't know how October became Breast Cancer Prevention Month with Halloween and everything, but I think that really magnifies the fears that people have. And because I think she has a really sane and balanced approach to it as that's founded on the science. And she's been a proponent of alternate screening methods for years and has offered thermography in her office and is very knowledgeable about proper early detection, as well as prevention, and as well as reversal. And so I thought she would be the ideal person to have come this month on Her Brilliant Health Radio and talk with us about the science, talk with us and give us a balanced approach so that we don't have to be afraid. We can take action on our behalf that is uh, based on science. So thank you. Well, it's easy to be afraid because as a consumer, um, you know, we now have social media, and so we get access to information a decade or two before clinical guidelines change. So it's so easy for us to be confused because we get this research article, we've had a chance to read it, even if we're not scientists, we can read the headline and go, wait a minute, mammogram doesn't save lives? Doctor, they take it to their, their, their OBGYN and say, My, but Google says... That, uh, that Dr. Google right, says that mammograms aren't going to save my life. Why should I do them? And they poo-poo the information because they're going by their college's guideline. But the guideline is based on data that's 10 years old. So I understand why everybody's confused. It just is a challenge to try to keep up with mm-hmm. the latest and greatest and yet follow the guidelines too. So I'm going to share some of the science and talk about um, 
better screening tools, better food, lifestyle changes, and supplements that can optimize your breast health. Because let's face it, breast cancer is scary business. If you were to do a clinical breast exam on this lady's breast, you would find it to be rock hard. It would probably bleed when you press down on it. And uh, she looks in the mirror. She knows it's not normal. And yet she's terrified because as scary as that is, the treatment is just even scarier. So it's scary. And the science to guideline is slower than molasses. It'll take decades sometimes for information to become a guideline. There was a study that they did in Norway, mostly Danish researchers, um, and they took about 4,903 women and studied them to see whether or not mammogram made a difference in their lifetime outcomes, their mortality data, how often they died from cancer. And what they found was really interesting. It went online in August of 2018. It was uh, put on social media in September and was published in print in October of 2018 and in the International uh, Journal of Cancer. And what's fascinating to me is that this data that was published in 2018 was collected between the years of 1987 and 2010. So at minimum, it's eight years old, and at most, it's 20 years old being published today. So that makes it even more confusing because clearly we have even better treatment in 2018 than we did in 2010 and way better than we did in 1987. But the summary of this study was that breast cancer screening does not reduce mortality. They took women who were eligible for mammogram and who weren't who didn't get mammogram, and it found that they had the same amount of cancer death. And we think that the improvements really now come from better treatment, not from better screening. So the mammogram didn't matter. So why should we do them if they don't matter? Mm -hmm. It's so scary because cancer, breast cancer, is the number one cancer in American women, more than the next three cancers combined. And it, in fact, is the number one cause of death in women ages 35 to 54. In older women, heart disease is the number one killer, but nevertheless, it's a terrifying condition. And so we live in fear of this. We are a member of the American family, and one of eight of us is going to get breast cancer sometime in our life. So what tools exist for the screening of breast cancer? There are four. The first is the Gale model. This is a risk factor calculation. The second is breast mammogram. And mammogram looks at the structure of the breast. How has the tissue changed on an x-ray? Is it got calcium deposits in it? Is the tissue torqued and tweaked and pulled in? Is it uh, the same as all the tissue around it or is it somehow different? Then there's ultrasound, which really does a little bit better job looking at dense breast tissue. And then there's breast thermography, which uses a thermal image or a temperature differentiation that tells us more about the function of the cells. And Sadly, far too many doctors put all their trust into mammogram and ignore the other three screening tools. Mm -hmm. So in order to talk a little bit about risk assessment, we have to talk a little bit about statistics. And statistics talk to us about false positives and false negatives, true positives and true negatives. And then we use a mathematical calculation to come up with something called sensitivity or specificity. And basically what this means in a nutshell to a layperson is that Statistics are, in fact, a numbers game, and that no test is 100% accurate in saying yes when you do have breast cancer and no when you don't. So it is 
a challenge among large populations to use the statistics to help make a decision because the statisticians are looking at thousands and millions of women and I don't care about them. I only care about me. So I want a test that's going to help me. And it's not Right. And just to help, sorry to interrupt, but people to help them understand true positive means if you have the disease, the test is positive. Yes. True negative is if you don't have it, you want the test to be negative. Correct. And the problem comes that no test is a hundred percent on those. You get false positives, meaning you don't have the disease, but the test says you do, or you get false negatives, meaning you don't, you have the disease, but the disease, test, but the test missed it, missed it. And then you get false, uh, false negatives and vice versa. And so this is how doctors talk about how accurate a test is. And right. the problem with breast cancer is that there's no test that's a hundred percent specific and sensitive. Yeah. Not even a biopsy, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So Gale model calculator is a numbers game. So what is a Gale model? You can go online and download this risk calculator. It is valid for women between ages 35 and 85. They're going to ask you on this calculator, when was your first menstrual period? How old were you when your first kid was born? How many relatives that you've had with breast cancer? Only counting mother, sister, or daughter, even though the evidence tells us that aunts, fathers, and brothers are are also risk. They're not calculated in the Gale model. Um, and men can get breast cancer too. Gale model calculates if you've had a previous breast biopsy and what your race or, race or ethnicity are. And we'll put and a we'll link in the show notes to it. So, um, In this risk assessment, if you have a five-year risk of 1.67 or higher, you're considered high risk. And what that should do is prompt an intelligent conversation with your healthcare provider to say, wait, I'm not average risk, I'm high risk. I might need a little different screening than all those guidelines that go for average risk women. So we um, look at um, 1.7 or higher is high risk. And so anybody 1.67 is considered in that category. And that's the link. So most of us have been taught, it has been drilled into us by our doctors, our OBGYNs and our family practitioners that mammograms save lives. But sadly, the evidence isn't really as clear as you'd like to think that it is. What is a mammogram? A mammogram is nothing more than a special breast x-ray. It uh, delivers 0.4 millisieverts of radiation for four images, which is typically taken two images per breast. But it's 50% uh, more if they use a 3D digital mammogram. It involves saying, put the breast on a plate that compresses the breast tissue to minimize the x-ray scatter. And it's done usually around age 35 in the United States. And then we recommend screening every one to two years until you're 85 years old. If you count up those numbers in the United States, that means average women could have as many as 51 mammograms for screening. That doesn't even count if it was abnormal and you had to come back for mm -hmm. extra pictures. But in Europe, they only screen once every two years, starting at age 50, which is 13 lifetime mammograms. So in Europe, they do 13 mammograms. In the U.S., maybe 50 mammograms or 51 mammograms. So it's really very different depending on which side of the pond you live. 
And just to put the amount of radiation in perspective, on average, without any x-rays in a year's time, you're exposed to about three millisieverts of radiation. So if you have um, six mammograms, then it's like you lived an additional year. Right. So, uh, yes, we are exposed to radiation just by living, but this adds on. Right. So, so um, when we do mammograms in the United States, we get a lot more um, radiation than the rest of the world. So, can you hear me still? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, I think in our office, or in my experience, I have been... Um, I've had a few mammograms in my life, and we call them screaming mammograms, not just screening mammograms, because yes. they hurt. Um, I personally have been left with skid marks and bruises on my breast from having a mammogram. I'm large-breasted, and um, it takes a lot of crushing in order to get my breast flat enough to do this scan. But I've heard small-breasted women say the same. I don't think it really matters. Um, I think all mammograms are unpleasant. But... Screening mammograms are not done in women who have a family history of cancer, a personal history of cancer, the breast cancer, BRCA cancer mutation gene, or a history of chest irradiation. They get diagnostic mammograms, not screening mammograms. So what does the evidence show? Well, to date, there have been about eight large randomized clinical trials looking at the benefits of screening mammography for the purposes of survival. And I find this fascinating that four of these studies were in Sweden, one was in Canada, two were in the United Kingdom, one was in the United States. Only one was in the United States. I don't understand why that is. Why, if breast cancer is the number one killer of women aged 35 to 54, why has there only been one major, large, randomized control trial in the country? I don't know. Good but, question. But there has been. So what did these find? Well, of these eight, non-conclusive results were the rule. They had the same breast cancer mortality or death rate as women who had mammogram as women who didn't. Some of the studies, when they teased apart the data, they found that you could have a, up to, at most, a 15% relative risk reduction in dying from breast cancer if you had a mammogram. So you have to have 51 studies done over your lifetime at a cost of several hundred dollars a piece at a cost of increasing radiation to get a 15% risk reduction in dying from cancer. So the experts are divided about when and how often to screen for breast cancer. It's no surprise that as a consumer, I'm confused because there's no universal guideline. The U.S. Preventive Service Task Force says if you're under age 50, don't do mammograms because breasts in cycling women are dense. It's like too much tissue for the radiation to get through and see. So we can't find tumors very often, maybe 40% of the time they're not accurate. So let's not do them in women under age 50. And the American College of Physicians agrees with that guideline. Yet the American College of OBGYN says, no, 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 start at 35. And the American College of Surgeons says, no, 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 start at age 40. The American College of Radiologists says, no, 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 start soon as you can, right? So everybody has a slightly different guideline. You could see five different doctors when you're 42 and get three different answers as to whether or not you should have a mammogram. Right. So it's no wonder you're confused if you're listening. 
Right. So furthermore, there's technical difficulties, right? If your technician is trying to do your mammogram, they're going to have technical difficulties that limit the accuracy of the test. If you're premenopausal and still cycling, if you're pregnant or lactating, if you have fibrocystic breasts or dense breasts, if you have unusually large breasts or very small breasts, if you've had a prior biopsy, any surgery, including breast reduction or biopsy, mammoplasty, if you've had hormone replacement, or if you have cancer. So like, who isn't one of those? I I don't know a woman that doesn't either have large breasts or small breasts. Almost none of us have perfect breasts unless we have implants. And then that is a technical challenge too. Yep. So mammogram is not a great test. The U.S. Preventive Service Task Force made its final recommendation on screening for breast cancer in 2016. And they said, if you're under 40, you have no signs or symptoms, don't do a don't do a mammogram. If you have a genetic mutation, you had chest radiation, this is a high-risk screening. You have an individual conversation with your doctor. But even then, that individual conversation could differ depending on what doctor you see. So the value of mammograms does begin to increase as you get older. Starting around age 50, you benefit the most. And the balance of benefit and harm happens when screening is done every two years. So don't let your doctor strong arm you into having a mammogram every year if the best evidence from the most studies says every two years at most. But doctors are people too. And we have family members who've had breast cancer. And so we often get caught with emotional guidelines, right? So if my wife or my sister or my brother or my friend or my um, partner had breast cancer, then I might be very prone to recommend breast cancer screening out of the guidelines for emotional reasons. So be aware of that as well. And when someone asks, tells you, oh, here's your order for a mammogram, go get a mammogram, take a minute and ask, what guideline are you using and why should I go now? Um, The decision to start breast cancer screening before age 50 is individual. And if you're under age 40, there might be more harm than good. And if you're over age 75, there might be more harm than good. So there's a window where mammogram helps. In our community here in suburban Atlanta, almost every hospital is now advertising 3D mammogram, also called breast tomosynthesis or DBT. And they're saying this is the latest, the greatest, the best thing for breast uh, cancer screening. And it gives additional information and helps us find cancer. Well, the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force said, well, we looked at the data and we don't think it's very compelling. So really, that's more of a marketing thing than it is a medical thing. And that's a challenge because as women, we're fed information from our hospitals, our trusted healthcare providers, that's really based more on marketing than medicine. They said, even in women with dense breasts, really probably doesn't help very much. And Um, balancing benefit and harm for breast ultrasound, MRI, tomosynthesis, or other methods in women with dense breasts really doesn't help us. We're not recommending any of those. What's interesting to me as a thermography provider is that there was no mention in any of the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force about thermal breast imaging, even though it's been FDA approved for many years. That's very interesting. And I just want to point out what Dr. Ellie brings up is a very good point that doctors are people too and human and have emotions. And 
whether you like it or not, you have to recognize that a lot of, or some, I should say, medical decisions are made on an emotional basis. And that means sending you for a mammogram maybe every year when maybe that's not the recommendation or having you come for a pap smear every year when maybe that's not the recommendation because they just feel. And that's kind of the art of medicine. That's not the science. And so gone are the days where you can just turn your health over to your practitioners and let them tell you what to do. You really need to become, uh, empower yourself and educate yourself about what the guidelines are, what is and isn't recommended so that you can make an educated decision or ask those questions of your provider so that you can have an intelligent discussion and really become the leader yourself of your health if you want a better outcome. Uh, And don't fall prey to advertising because hospitals are businesses and they have to make money. And so if they advertise this 3D breast imaging, you really need to step back and not just say, oh, that must be what's recommended because they're offering it but really educate yourself about the fact that maybe that's not in your best interest. Right. And, and also then, then there comes a problem because often insurance companies don't want to pay for this 3d breast image and yet your provider is recommending it. So you feel somehow cheated by your insurance company if they don't pay for a test that your doctor recommends. And yet, why is your doctor recommending it is the, is the bottom line question. And so um, it may very well be because they read a study that's newer than the guidelines that drives them to make that decision. But I think it really is relevant to you to know the answer to that why question. And then so, that gets into a whole other discussion of <laughs> should insurance, is insurance interested really in creating optimal health for you? Right. So we're going to do an hour just on that topic. So we won't go there right now. So in general, the U S preventive service task force and the American Academy of family physicians, which I belong to advise against routine screening mammogram in women under age 40. And they do recommend a conversation to discuss it in women age 40 to 49. And then not at all in women against younger than 40. But again, the guidelines differ, depends on who you pay your dues to as a physician as to what guideline you're going to recommend. Interestingly, the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force also said, don't do breast self-exams. We're not going to recommend that you teach a breast self-exam anymore. And that's interesting to me because as a someone who's very empowered in self-care, I find this guideline a little bit, um, I understand where it's coming from. What they're saying is that Doing a breast self-exam does not save any more lives. But I think that if it engages women in a conversation about breast health because they found something that concerns them, that can only be a good thing. So as a a tool to bring a woman into a conversation about uh, self-care, I think the breast self-exam is a great tool. As a tool for finding breast cancer and saving lives, it's not. So what you're using it for. If you're using a breast self-exam as a diagnostic tool for breast cancer, it doesn't really save your life. So U.S. Presentative Service Task Force doesn't recommend it. So this poor lady just had a mammogram and she comes home to see her husband and he, she says, yes, honey, I did have my mammogram today. Why do you ask? And I think that we've all felt like that, uh, like we have two um, cookie sheets smashing our breasts together as we uh, exit the mammogram facility. It does hurt, but 
if you're going to choose to do it based on some guidelines, um, it is uh, a useful tool for diagnosis, maybe not so useful for screening because it can overdiagnose cancer as well as underdiagnose cancer. So they did this study in 2016, the Annals of Internal Medicine, and they were looking at mortality from digital, not film mammogram, and they're looking at these false positives and false negatives. So what's a false positive? The mammogram says you have cancer, but you really don't. What's a false negative? The mammogram says you don't have cancer, but you really do. So those are both scary choices, right? Which is worse, I don't know. Um, so this large study in February of 2016, looking at five of these ginormous registries, over half a million women were screened with um, digital mammography. And of those, 2,900 cancer diagnoses were identified, sort of, because they included ductal carcinoma in situ as part of their cancer. There's a growing bounty of evidence that suggests that ductal carcinoma in situ is not cancer at all. That even though it has the word carcinoma in it, that perhaps a better word for it is idle. That stands for indolent lesion of epithelial origin. And what that means is that these tumors, by their very nature, are, have not invaded the breast. They're, they're little nests of abnormal cells that are self-contained. As long as they're self-contained, you don't die from them. They don't extend into the breast tissue. They don't cause any harm, but they're at high risk to become a problem. They're not currently a problem, but they're at high risk for becoming a problem. High enough risk that many doctors, including in this study, call them cancer. That's really to their advantage because 99.9% .9 of people with this diagnosis are still alive in five years. So it makes their statistic look really great in five years if they lump those into the same category as women with invasive cancer. But what did they find in the study? They found that 121 women had false positive tests. In other words, their mammogram said you have cancer and they didn't. And one and a half women out of a thousand had false negative tests. They were told that they didn't need a biopsy. They didn't have a problem and turned out later on that they really did. So 12% or one in five were asked to come back for extra pictures and 1.6% of the total needed biopsies. I think that's pretty scary. This test that we thought was the be all and end all for diagnosing cancer really isn't. It's sometimes it finds it and it's not there. Sometimes it's not, it is there and it doesn't find it. Uh, and dense breasts are like looking for a marshmallow in a snowstorm. So dense breasts are the bane of all of these diagnostic tests because the denser the breast is, the harder it is to find a lesion, whether you're looking with ultrasound, x-ray, or, or thermal heat. So dense breasts are a problem. And I wanted to share with your listeners a false positive horror story because when a woman was, is diagnosed with breast cancer, the person who actually does the diagnosing is a doctor that she never sees. And that doctor is the pathologist. Pathologists only look under the microscope at cells. And so they're looking at biopsies every day. Is this cancer? Is this not? Is this infection? Is this not? And um, I was on staff at Emory Johns Creek Hospital in the early 2000s. I think the hospital was built 2005, 2006. And 
shortly after the hospital was built, I went to Tumor Board. And Tumor Board is basically a roundtable discussion of all the brilliant cancer doctors at the hospital. And so we put up cases and they show x-ray pictures and they show CAT scan pictures and biopsies and um, photographs of, of different types of cancer at the tumor board. And so it's a learning opportunity for us to learn what kind of cancers are in our community and who's taking care of them and what's being done. And um, one of the pathologists was at the hospital was brand new. He just moved to Atlanta from, I think, MD Anderson. And he was a breast cancer specialist. So he pulled 25 cases of the last 25 cases that were seen at the hospital of breast cancer. And he was just looking at them all to make sure that everybody was on the same page and everything looked cool. He wanted to know what, what did cancer look like in Atlanta? Cause it may look a little different than it looked like where he came from. And what he found on the second or third case that he looked at terrified him because it was a woman who had, was a cancer survivor. Five years ago, she had, breast cancer diagnosis. She had surgery, chemo, and radiation. And then five years later, she had an abnormal mammogram. And um, so she had a biopsy and the pathologist read it as recurrent breast cancer. So he looked at it in his random overview and said, I don't think this is cancer. This looks like radiation change to me. This doesn't look like cancer. And so he had this slide overread by three or four different cancer specialists, MD Anderson, Cleveland Clinic, and Sloan Kettering. They looked at this tumor, and everybody agreed. Everybody who looked at it said, I agree, this is not cancer. But the woman was currently having surgery again, radiation and chemotherapy for a cancer that wasn't there because the pathologist made the wrong call. Now, in his defense, this is not an easy diagnosis to make. I've looked at these slides under the microscope myself. It's very difficult to tell a rapidly dividing cell if it's caused by infection or cancer or radiation. It's a hard thing to make a decision, but you can't be a little wrong here. You, you have to be 100%. And he made the wrong call, and the patient now had a second cancer diagnosis that had to be withdrawn. And so imagine the horror of her and her family um, of all the treatment that she underwent that she really didn't need to have. Now, having cancer once increases your chances of having cancer a second time. So she was at high risk and her mammogram was abnormal. But uh, yeah, bad case. So mammograms that show cancer that's not cancer is a false positive test. So yeah, I've read a statistic somewhere that said that up to 50% of women in a 10 year period, if they got screening mammograms annually would have a false positive and yeah. be proceduralized for that. That's a very high number. It's a very high number. So in our community, I tell my patients when I give them a mammogram order, I said, don't be surprised if they call you back. In our experience, almost a third of women who get a mammogram get called back for an extra picture. So don't be afraid if that happens. It doesn't mean something's wrong. Most of the time, it comes back nothing. And telling them ahead of time is a bit of damage control, and it saves a lot of fear because when they call you back for that extra picture, you're thinking, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, what do I have? And if your doctor says ahead of time, don't worry, it happens a lot, don't freak out, then it's easier to go through those steps. So what other modalities exist for breast cancer screening if mammogram's not all it's cracked up to be? Well, ultrasound. A lot of women are talking about ultrasound. 
But the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force and many insurance companies say no to screening ultrasound. Well, why is that? It's because of the studies. One large study that was done said not only did it not help, it may actually harm patients. And one study was done in uh, 2016 that said um, maybe it helps a little. So the BCSC is a huge database of women. Now recognize it was uh, collected from 94 to 2009. So again, it's almost 10 years old. It had 2.9 million women, though, with 9.5 million mammograms and 95,000 cancer cases. So it's a huge database. But when they went through and evaluated all of this and looked at all the data, what they found was that supplemental ultrasound screening after a negative mammogram for women between age 50 and 74 with dense breasts only averted 0.36 breast cancer deaths. So that's an awfully lot of testing for a test that really doesn't help very Furthermore, they found 354 patients ended up getting a biopsy based on their ultrasound result that uh, gave a false positive ultrasound um, uh, statistics. So that means 35% of the time we're going off to have a biopsy because the ultrasound looked bad, but it really wasn't bad. So Yikes, right? Who wants to have surgery and biopsy if they don't have to? And then once you've had a biopsy once, that puts you in a higher screening category for the Gale model. So you're, now you're not eligible for screening mammograms anymore. You got to go to diagnostic mammogram thereafter, even though you had a biopsy that wasn't really needed. So it's this vicious cycle of over-testing, over-testing, over-testing. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, the cost-effectiveness ratio in terms of dollars was that we had to spend almost $246,000 per year of quality of life gained. So that's not really cost effective. I'd rather spend $246,000 on something else. Yeah, and then the psychological cost is huge for people who have these uh, false positives. It's, right. it's huge economically as well as emotionally. So their, their final conclusion was supplemental ultrasound screening with, for women with dense breasts only substantially increases cost and does not produce any big benefit. So that's why they don't do it. Now, there was a study in 2015 that said maybe ultrasound might help a little bit by finding two to four more breast cancer cases out of every thousand women studied. And that was a meta-analysis of 80,000 women from 10 studies. So maybe based on that study, there's now popping up a lot of breast cancer screening uh, ultrasound um, small businesses in our community, and they'll do your ultrasound without a, a radio, without a mammogram, because the hospital-based radiology facilities in our community will not do a breast ultrasound unless you have a mammogram first. So Another option is thermal breast imaging, also called breast thermography or breast thermology. They're all the same thing. So uh, what, we, what we do is uh, we use a thermal camera to detect whether or not a woman has a heat signature that might be associated with increased metabolic activity. So um, I have an image on my screen that shows a, a bunch of marbles and marbles of varying sizes from about one centimeter down to about one millimeter. So a centimeter is about the size of a large marble, and that's the size of a tumor that most women will feel when they do a breast self-exam or their partner will find when they do um, 
examine a woman's breast. And this cent, this one centimeter sized lesion it, um, is, is pretty big compared to a lesion, the next two sizes, the purple and green one, which can be identified by x-ray mammogram. The next smaller two sizes, the pink and the yellow one are what's found on breast MRI. And the tiniest little red dot there, uh, about one millimeter in size, will create a heat signature that we can detect on breast thermal imaging. So thermal imaging can detect much smaller lesions, and that would, in theory, be a great thing, except that if you show that thermography image to a radiologist, and he does a mammogram, and an ultrasound, and an MRI, and he doesn't find anything, he says, you were wrong, doctor, there was nothing there, you, you're bothering me for no reason, this is a, an unproven technology. Well, seven or eight years later, it'll grow big enough for him to detect, and then he gets to be the hero and make the diagnosis. Right. So everybody listening probably knows intuitively that cancer grows. It starts microscopically, and then it grows in mass. And mammography needs to see a lesion of about four to five millimeters before it's going to detect it, whereas thermography could pick up something earlier at one millimeter. And so a test, just because you don't see it, doesn't mean it's not there. Right. And so that's what Dr. Ellie is talking about. Right. You may do a mammogram or an MRI and not see it, uh, right. but it could be there on thermography. And that's called the sensitivity of a test. How well does it pick up something that's there? Right. And so thermography is an effort to increase the sensitivity of early breast cancer detection. Right. And also thermography has a unique thing. Remember we talked about Thermography looks at breast function and mammogram looks at breast structure. So I can look at a thermography and see that there's, um, that the breasts have a heat signature associated with something brewing. And so it may not be cancer, but it's an environment that's happy for cancer to grow in. And so then it gives me a grand opportunity up to seven to 10 years to intervene with lifestyle changes that can change the woman's physiology and reduce the chances that this brewing thing will ever turn into a cancer. And for me, that's a blessing to be part of a, of a care plan that can reverse an abnormal thermography. Because these smallest lesions are too small to be seen by mammogram or ultrasound. They're really not insignificant and they're really not not present. They're just too small for the traditional diagnosis tools to be. Thermography is not a perfect tool, but it does add additional information about breast function. So the Gale model probably best predicts who's at risk. Ultrasound and mammogram find disease that already exists, that's already changed the breast tissue. In other words, the horse is out of the barn and out frolicking in the meadow. But thermography can find that heat signature before any diagnosable disease. So wouldn't you really like to know before your horse is out of the barn? I would. So I do thermography every year as a patient. What about research? Is there any research on thermography? Yes, there is a lot. Um, Any doctor who says there's no information about thermography probably never looked. They never Googled it. They never looked it up because Index Medicus literature has at least 800 peer review studies about thermal breast imaging for breast cancer screening. 300,000 women are included in these studies, and some have been followed for as long as 12 years. 
And currently, right now in the United States, there's uh, three large multi-center clinical trials ongoing comparing thermography to mammography for the screening of breast cancer. And I personally know one of the clinical uh, principal investigators. And and he has told me that it's looking really good, that thermography looks like it's going to blow mammogram out of the water for the earliest detection of clinically significant lesions. Um, The thermal breast imaging system uses the Marseille system to report normal versus abnormal. One and two are normal. Three, four, and five are, or four and five are abnormal. Three is kind of in between. It's not exactly normal. It's not exactly abnormal. And it's an opportunity for improvement. So um, we use these heat signature to identify areas of increased cellular activity. And medical thermology finds these abnormal metabolic and blood flow features that cause temperature changes of the skin that are then characteristics of certain diseases, including breast cancer. I do want to make the point that um, sometimes breast thermology reads a Th1 in the presence of ductal carcinoma in situ. And I wanted to make the point that some women feel somehow cheated or that the thermography was wrong or that thermography didn't save them. But remember, if we think about uh, 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 ductal carcinoma in situ as a precancerous lesion, it hasn't grown any blood cells to the area. It's not an area of increased metabolic activity. It's not an area that's going to cause harm in that lady in the short term, not for five years or longer, most likely. It's not really surprising that the thermography is going to be totally normal. And Dr. Hoekstra, the uh, PhD specialist in thermal breast imaging that we use to screen our, to read our our screening um, exams, is very interested in uh, studying these women to see if those women with what, what their long-term strategy or long-term outcomes are. If they had an idle lesion or abductal carcinoma in situ and a normal thermography, does that predict that they're going to be alive 20 years from now versus if they had a hot thermography and a ductal carcinoma in situ, is that a worse prognosis? We don't know yet, mm-hmm. uh, but the research is ongoing. So don't be surprised. But the good news is I don't think the thermography is wrong uh, when there's a ductal carcinoma in situ. It is important that you go through the prep properly to do a thermography. You have to wait at least three months after breast surgery to, or any biopsy, chemotherapy, or radiation before you have a thermology exam. If you're pregnant, um, we can do it because there's no radiation, no crutching, no, no touching. Um, but if you're nursing, we want you to empty your breast 30 minutes, 60 minutes before your scan. And there's other guidelines as well. Uh, we think the cold challenge is important. When we do a thermography, we uh, plunge your hands into ice water for 60 seconds. It's interesting to me from a physiology perspective that when cells grow in the breast tissue, they need a blood supply, and they randomly show up in tissue where there's not necessarily any blood vessels. So they create chemicals called angiogenesis factors that form new blood vessels to feed blood to the tumor. Well, these blood vessels are abnormal. They don't respond normally, and they don't have the um, normal architecture that a healthy blood vessel does. So when you get cold, all of your normal blood vessels clamp down to try to preserve heat to your brain and your heart. But when you have a tumor, those blood vessels are not abnormal, and they don't contract. So if I put your hands in ice water and make all of your blood vessels contract, 
the tumor blood vessels stay hot. They stay not, they stay dilated. They don't shrink down. So that gives us an opportunity on a pre and a post challenge thermography image to identify a lesion that we didn't see when it was cold, that we didn't see when it was normal, that we do see when it's cold. So this large scale clinical outcome trial in 2004 said it's absolutely critical that you have a cold challenge when you have a thermography to get the best possible test. So if your clinic where you go to have a breast thermography for breast cancer screening doesn't do cold challenge, they're not giving you the best state-of-the-art test. They're giving you a test that was accurate before 2004. So ask them to get up to date and provide you with a cold challenge test. Um, areas where thermography has been shown, has lots of evidence to support it, is in screening for breast cancer, screening for hot carotid arteries that are increasing risk for stroke, looking at thyroid disease, including autoimmune and thyroid cancers, looking at dental disease um, for root canal and dental infections, and looking at neurologic conditions, specifically that reflex sympathetic dystrophy or uh, chronic regional pain syndrome. Really good evidence on those areas. If your technologist is offering you a total body scan, a stomach scan, a heart scan, or a lung scan, they are not following the evidence because there really is no published peer-reviewed literature about total body thermology scans. Thermoscan, the company that we use, goes so far as to say this sentence. Thermology is not a legitimate diagnostic tool for every medical condition, and we consider claims for whole body studies to be speculative at best irresponsible, and probably a disservice to the patients and medicine. So they're very adamant, no whole body scans. And in our office, will you, not, you will not be able to get a whole body thermology. So it's not perfect test, but it does add information. The sensitivity of the test, in other words, you have a problem and it finds it, is about 97%. It misses three out of 100 but the specificity, how well it says, eh, you don't have a, a problem and we say you don't, that's only about 75%. So thermography is good at helping confirm if you do have disease, but not very good at proving that you don't. So combining all four screening tests in my office is prudent. We like to do the Gale model mathematical tool to assess your risk. We do mammography, or we may be doing it less now based on that Denmark study. Uh, following the guidelines at age 50. We do ultrasound if the breasts are deaths and you're okay with having a biopsy because ultrasound's likely to find a biopsy. And if it is abnormal, we're gonna get a second opinion. We're gonna get uh, thermal breast imaging as and combine all four pieces of information, including a clinical breast exam to make sure that everything's good. So for the next few minutes, I wanna talk about if your scans are good, how do you keep them good? Or if your scans are bad, how can you make them better? Is there anything as a patient that I can do to improve my dense breasts? And the answer is yes to all of the above. We're gonna spend a few minutes learning how to care for those girls. So number one, let's talk about bra wear. It is considered fashionable and, um, and culturally acceptable in the United States to wear a bra high and tight so they get as much cleavage as possible. And um, that dramatically impedes the lymphatic flow. Many cultures 
Um, expect that the breasts will sway in the breeze and move when you move. And that enhances the amount of lymphatic flow that goes through your breast to clear out toxin and trash and immune um, cells that are there that are supposed to identify and carry away any abnormal tissue. But we inhibit that when we wear breasts, bras, especially underwire bras. Fluffing we'll talk about in a little bit. I think that diet is a huge and underrecognized um, benefit to proper breast health. We think about diet for cardiovascular prevention. We think about diet for weight management. We think about diet for mood, but we don't usually think about diet for breast health. And yet our standard American diet is notoriously nutrient, phytochemical, and fiber poor and replete with saturated fat, damaged fat, and nutrient depleting, insulin stimulating sugars. I want you to get your teeth checked. Your teeth and your breasts are connected too. And I want you to eat supplements that are individually optimized, balance your hormones, correct digestive imbalance, and eliminate toxin. Herbicides, petricides, pesticides, petrochemicals, plasticizers, electromagnetic fields, bisphenol A and other bisphenols, nonstick coating, hormones are increasingly implicated in breast disease. Right, and so I just want to interrupt for a second. This really gets to what I'm always talking about, those four pillars of health. you got to start at the foundation, which for me is hormones, probably because I'm OBGYN for over two decades. Uh, you've really got to look at your not only your sex hormones, your estrogen, and your three types of estrogen, your estrone, estradiol, estriol, your progesterone, your testosterone. But also, and I know you're going to talk about this a little later, you need to look at your stress hormone, your cortisol, that directly impacts your risk of getting breast cancer. And it's backup hormone, hormone DHEA, your insulin and your thyroid. All of these hormones for me form the basis of your health. And then what Dr. Ellie's talking about is that next level toxicity, which has to do with gastrointestinal health. So internal toxicity and that external toxicity that comes from our environment. And we're really inundated with that now. And this is one of the best ways that you can look at decreasing your risk of breast cancer is by getting rid of those toxins. So detoxifying, but also stopping them from coming in. And then that next level for me is that nutrification where you get the nutrients on board because the body really does want to heal itself. It just needs the right tools. And 70 to 90% of Americans don't have the proper nutrient status to run the detoxification system, to balance their hormones, to get into an optimal state of health. And so that really requires supplementation. And then that top pillar is the mental, emotional, spiritual health. Really is the energetic framework for your physical body. So looking at the thoughts that you're feeding yourself, are they helpful and nutritious or are they toxic? and detrimental because those thoughts are things and they do affect your health through your stress system, through your cortisol. So, and she's going to go through some tools that you can use in these different areas to help decrease your risk of breast cancer. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, We, you know, we used to think that, or Darwin said it was survival of the fittest, right? Well, I think really for the 21st century is really the survivor of the best detoxifiers because our world is a much more toxic place than it ever has been before. And if you aren't taking active steps to both limit your exposure and increase your detoxification, your body is going to become a toxic soup 
and that increases the environment for cancer cells to grow. So what are you doing in your own life to limit your exposure? Control what you can control. When you go to the grocery store, you get a choice. Are you going to buy organic food that is lower in pesticides and chemicals? Or are you going to buy cheaper stuff that's loaded with pesticides? What about cosmetics? Are you going to spend the extra money to buy the really clean stuff? Are you going to cheap out and buy crap cosmetics because they're less expensive and yet fill your body full of all, all sorts of hormonally disrupting chemicals, cleaning supplies, um, electromagnetic fields? These things are toxic to our bodies, and we have the option to eliminate them to a much greater degree than most of us are currently doing. You got to poop. Poop is one of our best detoxifiers. If you are not pooping every day at least one time, you are not detoxifying. Your liver and colon should be cleansed from time to time. Pooping once a day is a good way, but we'll often put people on an annual cleanse, a 21-day elimination diet with some supplements to support liver and colon detoxification. I am a fan of colonics. I am a fan of far-infrared sauna and ionic foot baths of exercise and sweat and lots and lots and lots of hydration. If your urine is not clear, if it's yellow and golden, you are not getting enough water. There's lab tests we can do. We used to do this 216 hydroxy estrone ratio. That's probably not as valuable as we once thought it was. We're now looking more at the methoxy estrone. That's um, the more dangerous chemical because it changes DNA. But vitamin D is important. C-reactive protein helps look at your inflammation level. Four-point cortisol measures your stress level. Objectively, you can measure stress if your doctor is trained in how to do it. We look at hormones and their metabolites, all three estrogens and their downstream products, progesterone and its downstream products, testosterone and its downstream mm -hmm. products. We have to make sure that you're eliminating your hormones properly. Um, little known fact is that the downstream products of estrogen metabolism are carried out through your poop with an enzyme called beta-glucuronide. And if you don't have the right bacterial balance, you don't have enough garbage trucks to take out the estrogen trash. So not pooping will actually increase your risk for breast cancer. So please be sure that you're talking to your functional medicine practitioner about ways to optimize your gut health. We'll do a digestive stool analysis, and urine iodine is an important test. Um, there are three organs in your body that use iodine more than any other, the thyroid, the breath, and the gonads. And if you do not have enough iodine, your thyroid's going to get it first, your breasts are going to get it later, and your gonads last. So we're seeing increasing levels of fertility and breast health and thyroid health in our world because we don't get food that has iodine in it. Most of the, of the world historically lived within a few miles of the ocean. Well, we don't live there anymore, and we don't eat sea vegetables, which are full of iodine. And so um, as a society, we tend to be profoundly iodine deficient, especially those people in the Midwest. We call that the goiter belt, people who live around the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes are not sea. They're water, but they're not ocean, and they don't have iodine drinking supply. Right. And I would just add for people to make, make sea vegetables your friend. And I know that people say, what are sea vegetables? Well, seaweed, kelp, 
There are several different kinds and they're actually really tasty. So that's one of the best ways that you can get iodine in your diet. And you probably need way more than the 150 microgram per day RDA of iodine. So check out sea vegetables. Yeah. And when we do iodine testing, I will typically recommend milligram doses of iodine to repeat people who are deficient, even though the recommended daily dose is one one hundredth of that at microgram doses. So makes a lot of iodine to fill an empty tank and we can help you find out if you have that problem. I think Dr. Lappy should get the Nobel prize for this study and um, at Creighton university, what she did was uh, she took a bunch of middle-aged overweight white women from Nebraska and she put them on vitamin D and calcium. And then she studied them for four years to see if they developed cancer. What we learned was that um, if she got, if you got cancer in year one, she threw you out of the study figuring you already had it. She just hadn't found it yet. So new cancers diagnosed at year two, three, and four in her study. If you took vitamin D and you were able to get your blood level up to around 52, you got 77% less breast, less cancer, less breast cancer than women who didn't take vitamin D. So across the board, 35% risk reduction in all cancers, but specifically for breast cancer, a 77% risk reduction. So I believe that all those women who are wearing Susan G. Komen pink and fighting against breast cancer, if they took a couple steps back, put on vitamin D yellow and recommended that every patient take enough vitamin D to get their blood level up into the 50s, that we could in theory have 77% less breast cancer and three out of every four of those women wouldn't have to be walking for breast cancer. And no, she said in the fifties, I usually like my patients vitamin D to be 60 to 80 right. because that will get you optimal health. But if you look at what the lab says is normal, right. I think it's all the way down to, you know, 25, 30. Right. So you probably need way more vitamin D than you think you do. Yes. So what's a girl to do? How do you know if you're at risk and how do you protect yourself? Well, did you know that diabetes increases your breast cancer risk by at least 16%? So if you're a diabetic, now you're higher risk. Why is that? Well, it's because the risk factors for diabetes overlap the risk factors for cancer. Obesity, lack of exercise, high levels of insulin, high levels of inflammation and poor diet are risk factors for both conditions. And cancer loves sugar. So the higher your blood sugar is, the more you're fueling any cells that are um, potentially cancerous at becoming abnormal. And just a note on that too, the lab may say that your fasting blood sugar is quote unquote normal until it's up to a hundred or so, but really it needs to be less than 85. Yeah. We tell our patients 70 to 80 is where we would be if we're normal. So yeah, most people don't live there anymore. I don't think um, whoever decided that that was a comfortable bra ever actually wore it other than for a picture. But, um, you know, perhaps changing your bra style will apply different forces to the breast, the chest wall, and the lymphatic vessels. So if you're wearing an outfit where it's appropriate to wear a sports bra or a camisole, that'll give your breasts an opportunity to shift and move differently than if they're held high and tight against your chest. Well, and, and for everyone listening, there's a, a major push-up bra that Dr. Ellie just showed. And just to lighten the topic a little bit, like who decided that was a great comfortable bra and who decided that a thong was comfortable underwear also? That's for right. <laughs> right. Oh, I don't know who decided I didn't have that. a vote in that. <laughs> I didn't get a vote either. So um, bra wear changes and massage focus on 
pectoral muscles and lymph changes um, have not been studied as a single modality to reduce the risk of breast cancer. But I will tell you that we use that modality in a multimodal do- modality that we recommend women who have abnormal thermograms. And when we change their bra wear and optimize their hormones, their diet, their supplements, et cetera, we see thermographies improve from abnormal to abnormal. So while there may not be studies comparing it, our anecdotal evidence tells us that it's probably valuable to breast health. So fluffing is a type of breast massage. Uh, That vocabulary word came from our friend Cheryl Chapman, who's a nurse. It stands for personal hand lymphatic undulation flow facilitation. And basically it means I'm going to help you move the lymph fluid through your breast to soften and drain the breast tissue. And she has a whole handout that goes through it as to how to bring those killer T cells to your breast to help eliminate bacteria, cancer, help bring blood and oxygen to the breast tissue. And um, there's a technique where you basically move your breasts up and down, in and out, back and forth, and it really can help uh, your breasts feel better, especially if you're still cycling and have um, premenstrual breast tenderness. So our diet is a huge contributor. We live in America. We eat, many of us, a standard American diet, which is so nutrient depleted that it's really not even food. It doesn't have any phytochemicals or fiber. There's too much insulin stimulating sugars. And at the Michigan State University, they found that girls, teenagers, who eat a high-fat diet during puberty, even if they never become overweight or obese, have a greater lifetime risk of getting breast cancer. So as a mom, my girls are now 19, 21, and 23, but as a guiding behavior for their teenage years, I really discouraged them from eating food that looks like that picture, which is a hamburger, donuts, and french fries. Right, and it really has no chi or vital life force either. It doesn't, right. you know, it doesn't have the macro micronutrients balance either, right. but it has no life force. And so you really want to eat food that's fresh, because it, you are what you eat, literally, and you want that chew life force. That's right. So that high fiber, low glycemic index, color of the rainbow food that's rounded out with healthful fats, that's good for your breast tissue. And uh, organic soy that is either raw as an edamame or fermented is also a part of a breast healthy diet. Always organic with soy. Yes, no. always organic. So fiber... For every 10 grams of fiber that you increase your diet, you decrease your risk of breast cancer by 7%. So if you didn't need fiber to poop, maybe you need fiber to make your girls healthy. Um, a high-carbohydrate diet with high-glycemic foods increases the probability of developing breast cancer uh, in some studies, and that's estrogen-positive, progesterone-receptor-negative breast cancer, which is not a good type to have. Um, a diet high in fruits and vegetables is associated with a lower risk of uh, breast cancer. So uh, we do want to eat from the rainbow. We want to eat a mostly plant-based diet. And whole entire books, Dr. Barbarnot wrote a whole entire book, The Breast Cancer Prevention Diet. So toxins, pesticides, herbicides, petrochemicals, plasticizers are increasingly implicated. Uh, there's a, a chemical factory in Michigan that was dumping a bunch of chemicals into the water supply and downstream women were having cancers at astronomical rates. So there's now a huge 
study ongoing for the environmental research program looking at breast cancer risk in this population. And I think we're learning more and more about the endocrine disrupting properties of chemicals. In other words, they muck up your hormones. So you don't want to expose yourself to these if you can help it. And if you can't help it in your environment, at least you can help it in what you eat and put on your skin. So we talked about those, some of those things already. Electromagnetic fields are another source of toxin that many of us don't realize. Anything that's electronic that you plug in or charge is emitting electromagnetic frequency. The farther away you get from that thing, the less energy it will emit. But if you're holding your cell phone up against your body, you are exposing your body to electromagnetic frequencies at a higher rate. If your cell phone is not on um, airplane mode, you're going to attract even more magnetic fields. So these are dangerous. These are cellular disrupting. They change the calcium metabolism in your cells and uh, really disrupt the flow of energy within your cells. And this graph is between 1945 and 2000, and it shows an exponential increase. It's about 50,000 times more than that since 2000. So this graph is terrifying. So how do you limit exposure? Because in the, in the lab, exposing cells to electromagnetic frequency makes breast cancer cells grow faster and spread farther. Um, so don't ever carry your cell phone in your bra. Put it in airplane mode. Keep those EMFs out of your bedroom. No wireless phone, no cordless phone, no laptop, and especially for your teenagers, no cell phone under the pillow ever. Um, there's lots of books, Earthing by Stephen Sinatra and the Non-Tinfoil Guide to EMF by um, Nick Pinot are all really great books if it's a subject you're interested in. And go to the beach or the go mountains. Beach and the mountains. The mountains. <laughs> That's where we have less exposure. Less EMF. And unplug when you're on vacation. Right. Try to do an experiment and not touch your cell phone for 24 hours at least while you're on vacation. Did you know that they now have um, some cruises that are cell phone free? You have to pay extra to leave your cell phone. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> um, your teeth. Your teeth and your breasts are connected. Um, periodontal disease and missing teeth has a higher rate of cancer, 5% risk of breast cancer in women with missing teeth versus 0.5, so like tenfold more cancer in women with periodontal disease. We're also beginning to understand by looking at some thermal images that women with hot breasts often have hot jaws. And so we're thinking that these uh, root canal teeth, we know that root canals are basically dead teeth left in your skull. And at the root of those teeth are toxins and bacteria that can get into your bloodstream and sap the energy from your immune system so that it all goes to your mouth and isn't paying attention to your heart or to your breast. So uh, root canal teeth are a problem. I recommend that if you have a root canal teeth, any root canal teeth, that you speak to your dentist about, um, about um, x-raying those tooth roots because a normal dental x-ray doesn't get all the way up into the root. Ask them to x-ray the tooth root and make sure there's no dark spots there indicating trouble brewing. And this cannot be overemphasized about dental health when it comes to breast cancer, but when it comes to heart disease, when it comes to dementia, when it comes to improving your health, because 
infection, inflammation in the jaw from periodontal or gum disease and what she's talking about, these remnants from root canals, endodontal and also from the root canals. It's a huge source of inflammation that's undiagnosed that is affecting your health and it's silent. So listen closely to what she's saying. Yeah. Very important. And, and even in uh, pregnant women, women with periodontal disease and endodontal disease have increased risk of miscarriage and fetal death, premature birth when their teeth are not healthy. So um, it's a huge problem for women to not have healthy teeth and gums. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a huge believer in supplementation, upwards of 90% of my patients when we do their blood tests and we check their vitamin levels for vitamin D, for vitamin A, for omega-3 fatty acids, for iodine, they're deficient. So we do targeted nutritional supplementation to optimize them. Almost all of our patients take multivitamins, fish oil, vitamin D and E in the form of tocotrienols and also vitamin D we always give with K and A. Um, but also sometimes we do targeted nutritional uh, replacement with IV vitamins, especially the vitamins Bs and the C. We also give turmeric because it has anti-inflammatory properties as well as antioxidant properties, as well as immune balancing properties. Iodine, we've spoken about. methane and indole-3-carbonyl are derivatives of broccoli extract. Mm-hmm. These change how your hormones are detoxified and make them much gentler and easier for your body to process. Probiotics, because of how they help your gut health. Evening primrose oil is a essential fatty acid that um, balances your immune system and reduces inflammation. Organic soy and kudzu are full of isoflavones that help support your um, cellular pathways and decrease your risk for cancer. Alpha-lipoic acid Milk thistle is a great detoxifier. Flax seeds, but not the oil, contain lignans that help you eliminate your hormones by acting like a sponge to suck them out through your GI tract. Zinc, magnesium, amino acids. We recommend digestive enzymes in some patients. And then we reach to our other colleagues in traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, uh, colonics, and other therapies. So um, there's so much that you can do to care for your girls besides just getting a mammogram. I think it's really important for us to know that being socially isolated is terrible for your health. Women who were socially isolated before they had a cancer diagnosis were 66% more likely to die and twice as likely to die from their breast cancer. So please be involved with a friend. Um, You need a friend group to get through life. Having a community that you belong to is one of the secrets to longevity. Even if you're an introvert, find a a community to share with, whether that's faith-based or friend-based or hobby-based. You need a community. It will improve your health in many aspects, and especially if you have cancer. We believe in an attitude of gratitude and journaling. We believe in stress support and prayer and meditation and grounding and nature. We believe in better screening using reputable imaging facilities and getting better food and targeted supplementation to help reduce the density of your breast tissue so your diagnostic tests work better. We believe in lifestyle changes. That's 80% of the game right there. Even if your genes say you're at high risk for breast cancer, your lifestyle can change the outcome so greatly. Get a girlfriend and be empowered to conquer your fear over breast cancer. There's so much that you can do to change the course of your health, and you have the power to do it if only you're educated and willing to make changes. 
So I'm Dr. Ellie Campbell, and I wanted to thank you for your attention today. Um, Breast Health Awareness Month is one of my favorite months of the year because I'm truly passionate about educating women and the things that they can do to change their health outcomes. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Ellie. And I just, I just want to reiterate a few salient points that you've mentioned that uh, genetics does not determine necessarily whether or not you're going to get breast cancer. If you have a BRCA1 or 2 diagnosis in your genes, then that's a different story. But for the rest of us, the majority of us, we, our genes are only 10 to 20% of determining factor in what diseases we're going to get, including breast cancer. So that means we have an 80% control over what happens to our health and all the things that she's talking about, eating a healthy diet that's plant-based, taking nutritional supplementation that includes antioxidants, uh, essential fatty acids, that includes phytonutrients, that includes probiotics that gets you your B vitamins, your C vitamins, all of these things to help your body to detoxify and clear and heal, Uh, de-stressing, decreasing your EMFs. So there's so many tips that she's given you. I'm going to put some links in the show notes to the Gale model, to the fluffing, how you do that. You can get a discounted thermogram in the month of October at her office for $175. You do not need to be a patient at her office. So if you live in the greater Atlanta area, if you live in a state farther away, it's sometimes difficult to find reputable thermography sources. This is one that you can utilize. And like I said, you don't have to be a patient. So... The challenge for everybody listening is I want you to pick three of the tips that Dr. Ellie has mentioned today. Three things. What are three actions you could take today to change your health and decrease your risk of breast cancer? Maybe it's when you go to eat tonight, you don't have that dessert that's full of carbohydrates and sugar, right? Maybe you don't have that. Maybe you go home and you have an apple instead. Or maybe you, when you're at the store getting cosmetics, you choose one that has all natural ingredients and doesn't have phthalates and other toxins in it. So I want you to think about it before we end the podcast episode and come up with three things and commit to do them. And then tonight when you go to bed, I want you to ask yourself, you're going to think, Dr. Kieran said, what three things was I going to do? And I committed to them. Did I do them? And if you did, I want you to endorse yourself and pat yourself on the back because health is not a destination. It is a journey. And so if you've done three things on that journey, you have moved yourself towards health and healing. So thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Ellie, for Breast Health Month. May you always have wonderful breast health. (laughs) Thank you. You as well, my dear. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Her Brilliant Health Radio. Hopefully you are inspired to take action on some new information you received today. A step towards the bountiful, blissful, beautiful vitality that you deserve. If you have health topics and questions you'd like addressed, please message me on my Facebook page or visit KieranDunstonMD.com and let me know. I'd love to help. Remember to share this podcast on social media and send it to your friends and family who could benefit from it too. 
If you love the show, please go right now to iTunes, write a review, and make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll be the first to know when future episodes are available. Thank you again for joining me. And remember, achieving optimal health isn't magic, it's science.